0: to episode 31 of Radicals in Conversation, a monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. In February, we published a wonderful new book by Chris Carlson Hidden San Francisco, a guide to lost landscapes, unsung heroes, and radical histories. Chris is a writer, San Francisco historian, tour guide, photographer, and occasional college professor. He conducts award winning bicycle and walking tours of San Francisco history each year. The book is a radical alternative guidebook to the history of San Francisco. It's complete with maps detailing walking and bike routes. Luckily, it's also a great armchair read as well. And so we wanted to feature it on the podcast, even though no one's likely to take it out into the wild for a little while yet. And Hidden San Francisco is, of course, available to buy from pletobooks.com. You can use the coupon PODCAST at the checkout to get 50% off. And the print edition comes with a free ebook as well, so you can get reading straight away. Today's discussion was recorded at the end of March, and Chris is in conversation with fellow Bay Area historians Nicole Meldal, Liam O'Donoghue, and Lisa Ruth Elliott. But before we dive into that, I have a few shout outs to make. Around the time of our last episode, Pluto launched a Patreon page. The global lockdown is a real existential threat for us and the Patreon is a way for us to weather the current storm, to continue publishing and to put resources into new areas like a programme of live streaming events. The response from our community has been amazing. Everyone who signs up as a patron gets a shout out here and so the first 50 honourable mentions are as follows. Kevin Gannon, Rivers Solomon, David Hamblin, Albie Laird, Simon Hanna. Leah Caprio, Stefan, Diana Lane, Ben Scott, Justin Carville, Ian, Andrew Kay, Philip Jones, Angus Thomas, Robin Cooley, John Foley, Karen Langley, Beth Brooke, Derek Sweetman, Tim Jeffs, Daniel Whittle, Tobias Denskus, Prince Variety, Joss Hans, Evelyn Muriel, Abel Fools, Daniel Urquieta, Ben Hart, Andrew Broman, Stephen Nye, Yeza Hernandez... Arno Gallier, Christian Gerdoff, Juha van Selft, Victor Petrusha, Glyn, The Blockchain Socialist, Josh Turner, Asfar, Andy Lockhart, Jonathan Burnett, Spaghetti for Brains, Patsy Moran, Alison Asseter, Phil Cohen, Harold Berthelsen, Jim and Paula Kelly, Morten Urgaard, David Berry, and Susanna Narotsky. Thanks so much to all of you for signing up as Patrons. If you're listening to this and you've not yet checked out the Patreon, then please do head over to patreon.com forward slash plutopress. You can join from just £3 a month, and member benefits include special discounts, free eBooks, exclusive online content and merchandise, including some gorgeous new screen-printed tea towels and totes, and much more besides. You'll also get access to the full, unabridged version of this episode of the podcast, and your chance to submit your questions in advance to future guests on the show. Right, that's the housekeeping over, so without further ado, Chris Carlson with Nicole Meldahl, Liam O'Donoghue, and Lisa Ruth Elliott.
1: So welcome to this podcast uh, for Pluto Press. This is Chris Carlson. I'm the author of Hidden San Francisco, a guide to lost landscapes, unsung heroes, and radical histories of San Francisco, of course. And it's a book that just came out at the end of February, perfect timing, (laughs) right into the maelstrom. And uh, we had a couple of really fun events early on. We did a, a Bay cruise, and we also had a birthday party for me on March 11th, which was also a celebration of the release of the book, which you can see online. But today, we brought together some of my favorite local historians, grassroots historians like, like I am, uh, to discuss the book and discuss sort of how we go about doing community history in this time in San Francisco in the Bay Area, not particularly related to the, the medical crisis that we're facing, although we might get into that. Um, but anyway, let me just give you who they are, and they'll tell you a little bit more about themselves. So first, we have Nicole Meldahl, who's the new executive director of the Western Neighborhoods Project on the west side of San Francisco. Nicole, tell us about what what you're up to.
2: yeah, thanks, Chris. Thank you for having me. So, I guess explaining my grassroots history bona fides, I've been doing this for about fifteen years now, which is crazy. I started off at s f State and then working um, at the Golden Gate National Recreation Area as an archivist and 2006 where I was basically cataloging administrative records from the army and the park and reconciling inherited materials from the old army museum on post, which was a really fascinating entree into San Francisco history from the military's point of view. (laughs) Um, And so while I was doing that, then I started uh, volunteering with the Western Neighborhoods Project around 2012. For those who don't know the Western Neighborhoods Project, um, is uh, focused on the history of the west side of San Francisco. So we do walks and talks. We write articles, videos, podcasts, exhibitions that match up art and history. And we also manage a program called OpenSF History, which is a crowdsourced archive of historical images that span all of San Francisco from the 1850s to the 1990s. And you chose to use some of those in this book, Chris. So we appreciate yes. that.
1: Yeah, quite a few, actually. I would have used a lot more if there'd been more room for photographs in the book, but uh, we're glad to get the ones we got there. And, of course, we use them quite extensively in our uh, project, Shaping San Francisco, at org, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a minute. Uh, next up, we have Liam O'Donohue, who I had the pleasure of doing a, a podcast with just a few days ago for his amazing and wonderful East Bay Yesterday podcast. Liam.
3: That's right. Yeah. So, all of you listening out there, if you don't get enough of uh, me and Chris talking in this conversation, you can you can listen to that at East Bay Yesterday, um, which is a podcast I started. About four years ago, it's mainly focused on Oakland, Berkeley, Richmond, other uh, towns and cities throughout Alameda and Contra Costa County across the bay from San Francisco. And uh, the reason I started that was just because the East Bay has been changing so much in uh, you know the last decade or so. And I just felt like we were in danger of uh, losing our history. So I've started interviewing people and uh, it kind of has grown from the podcast into walking tours, boat tours. Uh, I did a map of things that no longer exist. And I'm even planning on uh, doing some apparel and merchandise that will hopefully be coming out after this uh, pandemic crisis passes by us, um, focused on native flora and fauna. Awesome. It's, it's, and it's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to discussing your book, Chris.
1: Great. I was just thinking you should reissue Eldridge Cleaver's famous pants. <laughs> uh, okay. Next up, we have the person without whom this book would have been impossible, and it is my colleague and co-director of Shaping San Francisco, Lisa Ruth Elliott.
4: Hi, everyone. I have had the pleasure of of co-directing and being part of the shaping of the project, Shaping San Francisco, a community participatory history projects uh, for the past 13 years now, uh, which started with just noodling around on our digital archive, foundsf.org, being an editor and helping transform it into a new platform. It's an open source archive that we encourage all San Franciscans to use as a place to deposit memories. And we are the administrators, Chris and I, together. And I have been leading walking tours and bicycle tours with Chris and also teaching at the university level, which is not so grassroots, but it it has been translating what we do with Shaping San Francisco into the academic setting, which is basically getting people out onto the streets, peeling back the layers, looking at what we know about the the various points in history that are significant to the development of an urban center and So a lot of the themes that we cover with Shaping San Francisco in our talk series, our tours, on our digital archive, are really um, condensed into Hidden San Francisco. And it's a pleasure to be able to chat about it a little bit with all of the people that I enjoy working with here in the Bay Area. Mm
1: Great. So the book, of course, is uh, what we're here to talk about. But just to give a little bit of background as to how it came about, you know, the the Project Shaping San Francisco has its origins back in the mid 90s in San Francisco during a period of time of, uh, you know, frenzied tech development. And everybody was running around acting like interactive multimedia was going to be the, better than sliced bread and replace all of their media forms. And so as that was developing, we, we got involved, me and some friends, Greg Williamson and Jim Swanson, uh, particularly, but several other people as well to develop what we thought was going to be a game, and it turned into a CD-ROM history project of San Francisco, which took the name Shaping San Francisco, and we issued that at the beginning of 1998. The first CD-ROM came out, as well as a series of public kiosks, because what we believed in was interactivity between human beings, not between you and a computer, but between you and other people. And by putting out public kiosks around the city, we had about a half a dozen at the peak. We hoped that people would sit down and talk to each other after looking at something on a computer screen about what they had seen and what they thought it meant and how they might contribute to to expanding that information. So uh, we had this kind of deeper, longer history of sort of engaging with technologies and ways of telling history and what kinds of histories we wanted to tell were the histories from below, the histories that had been left out or suppressed or forgotten or overruled by the powers that be. And you know we kind of came of age at a time in terms of doing history in the 90s and early 2000s when we're way past the point where there was a big controversy over this new histories from the 60s and 70s, which often had sort of roots in more of a Marxist perspective or social history perspectives that really grounded the daily life of everyday people as the, the foundation of a of a new way of understanding how the world got to be the way it is. So our efforts were based on that logic. We saw that as being a fruitful place to go. But we also sort of saw ourselves as people who weren't historians, particularly at that time, but were going to deliver history in a new way, that we were essentially making what we called tertiary histories, where neither working in primary sources, nor were we producing secondary histories based on primary sources. We were taking all the secondary sources and repackaging them and reproducing them in this new media form known as interactive multimedia at the time. Now we just think of it as the Internet. At that time, it was a little too dense to be conveniently put on the internet, but it's, it was a decade later. So that effort then was grounded in a certain philosophical approach, but it was also about sort of understanding interfaces and understanding how could we access information in a way that was new and different, which really begged the question of Because you know, when you have the emergence of the internet, which now we all take for granted, and somebody listening to this who's grown up as a digital native won't even think about it. It's just the air we breathe. But in the mid-90s, it was new to have hyperlinks, to be able to click on something and go sideways from the topic you were in. And uh, that has led, of course, to an unbelievable glut of information and connection that's available to any of us at all times, uh, just a few clicks away. But at the time, it was new, and we were trying to really figure out how to sort of situate this complicated, multi-layered history of the city, this particular city, San Francisco, and then to some extent the larger environs around it. Uh, in a way that could actually help people make the kinds of connections that we were finding between labor and ecology and the way that human labor had actually produced this particular configuration of urbanism, et cetera. And that we always sort of saw as being crucially things that were historically developed from the everyday lives of the average person, not just the the great men, not the generals, not the business owners, et cetera, who always claimed to be the ones who made San Francisco, but actually the everyday people. So that theme, I think, is kind of central to the whole discussion here is history from below. So I'm going to sort of throw that out to you guys and let you have a whack at how your own work has dovetailed with that and or insights you might have developed into how history is better understood when it's looked at through that prism or worse, as the case may be. Who wants to go first, Nicole?
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, you really kind of nailed exactly how I approach history. At WNP, we do this thing. I have a series called The San Franciscans, which is trying to daylight the extraordinary lives of ordinary San Franciscans. And I think that doing that kind of work helps people see themselves in the historical record in ways that they never could have before, because it always feels like we're speaking about pioneering businessmen or things that are so far beyond our reach. But San Francisco really was shaped by people like us. And the other point that I was thinking of when you were speaking was that I didn't consider myself a historian until people started calling me a historian.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's true for me too, actually.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I was like, oh no, those are, um, you know, academics who are in their ivory towers and who are more concerned with footnotes than faces. And a lot of what we're doing now is trying to shift the narrative and shift how people view history work and what it means to be a historian, what historians look like, because historians are just all of us. We're all, as you point out in your book, making history together every day. So as soon as I read the opening chapter, I was like, I'm going to be down with this book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Liam, what, 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 you want to jump in?
3: Yeah, well, you know, one... A personal reason why I really appreciate approaching history from sort of a more kind of street level view of things is just because a big part of my project, the podcast involves interviewing people. And I just find it so much more interesting to interview people who have maybe never been interviewed before, or who have never been, you know, given that kind of attention from the media before, because years ago when I first got into journalism, I was interviewing a lot of uh, musicians and entertainers and politicians and people who have been interviewed a million times, and they're just so practiced in speaking in sound bites and creating their own mythologies, and a lot of what they say is very predictable. but when you talk to people and get people on the microphone who have never been asked about their lives before. A lot of the time they're reluctant at first, but then once you get the ball rolling, they really open up and the the worlds that they share with you are just things that you would normally and most of us never get a view into unless you're in that community, unless you're relatives with this person or you work with them. So I just love this concept of, you know, sharing slices of life that, you know, would normally be separated or invisible Because I think that helps bring us together as a community when, you know, our neighbors aren't invisible to us, when we can kind of see them in all their complexity.
1: Yeah, and, and you're an amazing interviewer, by the way, because I've, I've always been really appreciated your ability to get what's what's really unusual and interesting out of people. When I've, I've done a lot of oral history interviews, too, and maybe, Lisa Roots, you can talk a little bit about our <laughs> shared frustrations around some of those interviews, which have been quite dull and it's been difficult to get them going in interesting directions. But the other thing I wanted to invite Lisa Roots to, to talk about was um, the sort of relationship we have to traditional history, the books and the footnoting process that Nicole alluded to, which we were, uh, of course, at one time kind of disdainful of. Where I was. And I think part of, part of your contribution to the project has been to sort of ground us in a more serious approach to that stuff. And we've been backfilling footnotes ever since. But why don't you take a whack at that stuff? Sure.
4: I would love to talk about this history from below first, though, if you sure, go for yeah, it. It. Yeah. come back to the footnoting thing, because I, um, I've i had the experience of being a public muralist as well, um, being out on the street, um, interacting with ordinary folks while we're doing some professional activity of, of art creation. And I think there's a lot of parallels between how one considers oneself engaged in what could be seen as a professional activity like history or art or muraling or painting. And as muralists, we've had this sort of same response from people when you ask people about their opinions or what their contributions might be say like what would you want to see on the wall Um, on a painted mural most people will say like oh no you're the artist you you should just do that because I, I I don't know I I wouldn't know what to do right but then you get someone in a conversation about like well you know what do you see? You see a tree, you see a house. How about some people in the street? And they're like, well, you know what you should have up there? You should have this. And then their imagination starts to open up. And I think the same thing is true about history. If you were to ask someone like, oh, well, what would you contribute to the historical record? People would be maybe put off by that kind of statement. But as you begin to converse with people about what's meaningful in their life or or things that stand out for them in their own memories, people already have the capacity to be historians they just haven't been given that access or allowance maybe to do so and it doesn't mean it's not problematic like you're saying in our oral history gathering sometimes maybe we just don't have the right question or the entree for folks to feel like they have something significant to contribute or whatever is meaningful to them might not actually be what we're looking for um but I think that there is the capacity within all of us to have imagination and um, significant memories that dovetail with the creation of an urban center like San Francisco. And it's, it's about permission, I think, and opening people up. And I want to second that about Liam and um, your, your podcast. I feel like the, the way that you approach the, complexities of the East Bay landscape and society and the changes that are happening now, along with the history, you really have opened up a wide variety of people's experiences into a um, common story. And I think that East Bay yesterday is a really great source of getting that understanding of history from below. It's It's been really wonderful to watch that progress as you keep that podcast going.
3: Oh, well, thank you so much. And I I just wanted to add that the reason why I chose the podcast medium to, you know, gather and, and share history is because, you know, my background originally was as a print journalist. And one of the most frustrating things about that for me was that you interview people and then you end up cutting 95% of what they tell you. You know, it it just, most of the interviews end up on the cutting room floor because in an average article, you're only going to be able to include a few sentences of quotes. And I I always thought that what the stories people were telling me were the most interesting thing about what I was doing. And so the podcast uh, medium allows people's own voices and own stories to really kind of carry the narrative forward and sort of frame what we're talking about. So I see a lot of what I'm doing is really just kind of creating the platform for people to share their stories. And of course, I try to, you know, shape those stories in ways that are interesting and do a lot of editing. But, you know, I don't always know like what uh, analysis I'm going to have or what take I'm going to have going into these stories. I really let what people tell me shape the final product quite a bit.
1: Yeah, Nicole, you guys have been doing uh, podcasts over in the Western neighborhoods for quite a while too. Which Lisa Ruth and I are actually on one once upon a time with Woody and, and David, and we love them and they're really interesting and they're very short and they have a really. Di- you guys have had a different approach to podcasting over there. Maybe you could just give us a quick uh, uh, take on some of the ways that you guys approach setting them up and producing them.
2: Yeah, well, um, we we record them in somebody's garage in Golden Gate Heights. So, you know, it's a casual atmosphere. And I mean, from the beginning, we wanted the podcast medium to be an approachable medium. So this isn't going to be hard hitting history. We're not going to throw a bunch of facts and figures at you. It's really just like a bite size uh, portion of a much larger story. So If you're talking about organizationally, how we're strategically using it, we're hoping that this will get people interested and it will track them back to our website where they can get much longer articles and really dive deeper into the topics. And we just, in general, try to keep it fun on the podcast. I mean, there's so many academic ways you can access history, but um, I mean, how many stories have we all come across in what we do where we're like, this is an insanely entertaining story? Yes. Yes. (laughs) And I mean, there's so many historians we come across that are wonderful researchers and are such genuinely beautiful human beings, but really suck the life out of the stories <laughs> 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 They researched. So we're very oh, yeah. um, cognizant of that. So we try to make it approachable. David and Woody have performance backgrounds. Um, the best kept secret in San Francisco is Woody uh, graduated from clown college. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> David, um, David has an improv background. So they really taught me to just like, leave authority at the door. It's not what this is about. It's about story sharing and getting people excited about things that they're going to find in their city.
1: Yeah, that's great. And I, that actually leads well to some, one of the point that I wanted to sort of interject into the, our conversations having to do with uh, the relationship of multiple points of view and multiple ways of telling stories to creating meaning and to creating the larger ability to sort of impart an understanding of the world outside, because it's pretty easy to to produce the cacophony, right? We all mm-hmm. participate in that process in various ways. Certainly, Lisa Ruth and I's work at FoundS- with foundsf.org is I like to characterize it as the Winchester Mystery House of websites at this point, because I've been adding so many more rooms to it. If those who may be listening to this in faraway places may not know that the Winchester Mystery House is this weird mansion in San Jose, California, that was built by Sarah Winchester, the heiress to the Winchester Repeating Rifle Fortune and for some reason, she was convinced that she would never die if she kept building. And she built many stairways and windows and doors and extra rooms that w- literally go nowhere. And you open the door and it's a brick wall, et cetera. A very strange place to visit. And in some ways, our website's like that. In some ways, the Western <laughs> neighborhood's website's like that, too. Yeah. I think Liam's work more or less escapes this by being focused <laughs> on a very specific topic each time. And he really lets, lets the topic air itself out. But there's a way in which our kind of production of all these different pieces that are trying to be inclusive of multiple points of view, multiple writers, multiple voices, doesn't necessarily impart meaning as such or or any particular. We're not in the business of trying to create a message here, but are trying to, to sort of help us and help the people that are using our, our work understand the world we're in and how it got like this. And so I think that there's something kind of challenging about all that and in many respects. That's why hidden San Francisco appears now when it has is because I was at a conference on history from below with some colleagues in Europe a few years ago. All of us, it turned out, were very busy and involved in doing tour guiding through the streets of Berlin and London and Barcelona and other places. And I was, of course, San Francisco. and. Um, you know, you go out in the city, and you, if you've been accumulating all these histories, you have stories to tell in each location that you go to. It helps you peel back the layers and sort of make sense of the, the world, how it evolved over time, the different layers of history that contributed to that reality. But, and the book itself, Hidden in San Francisco, is very much a distillation of, of all these years of storytelling during tours. In that respect, for those people who have ever been on one of our tours or would like to have a different way of understanding San Francisco. It's a perfect companion to that experience, and it's easy to do. But I wanted to sort of invite you all to, to discuss a little bit about the, this. It's not really a conflict, but it's a challenge to take multiple points of view and knit them together into meaningful narrative structures. And that's what the historian finally does, whether professional or anti-professional as some of us are, uh, we still are in the business of trying to make sense of the world. And narrative is kind of where it comes down to, can you tell a story that makes sense to people? So I wonder how you see each of you, your own relationship to this sort of cacophony of, of material that we are all have access to, the other people's points of view that we're trying to help promote or get give amplify, I guess would be the best word, and how that finally uh, does or doesn't produce coherent narratives.
3: Well, that's a that's definitely a tough question. And I think that one thing that we're all aware of is the challenge of getting people to pay attention to what we're doing, because there's so much competition out there. There's a million podcasts, there's a million books, there's a million events. And so in order to grab people's attention, you know, Chris, you mentioned the term narrative a few times, and I think that's really key you need to be able to weave all these voices together, all these facts and figures and maps and, you know, threads together in a story that is somewhat entertaining, to be honest with you. You know, I think that a big part of, you know, what I do, I try to take these very challenging topics that are often very depressing, like things regarding systemic racism or, you know, the genocide of Native peoples or various forms of, you know, discrimination, because a lot of my stories are about kind of social struggles and, and package those in a way that's not just purely kind of like hitting people over the head with bad news and, um, you know, kind of dwelling on, on the negative aspects. So, you know, I think that it's finding those conflicts in history, those moments when change happens and presenting them in a way where, you know, there is a kind of lesson that can come out of it at the end is important. And another thing, you know, one thing that I listen to or that I'm listening for when I'm interviewing people or when I'm gathering information together for a story is what makes me feel emotional. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when you're reading something in history or when you're interviewing someone and you laugh or you feel like crying or you get really angry, I think those are the kind of key elements that you want to include in a story. And so I try to like find those instances that are really powerful and, you know, kind of put those all out on the table in front of me and then kind of figure out, okay, what's the thread that's going to pull these together in a narrative that's going to hold people's attention for a half hour or an hour or in your case, you know, for a whole book or for an event that's going to last for an hour or two.
4: I'd love to chime in a little bit because I've been obviously accompanying you, Chris, on this question and this journey through pulling it apart for a number of years now. And I think that, in that sense of, that people don't f- consider themselves historians offers us the opportunity, those of us who actually are diving into this material and looking for the inspiration or the, for want of a better word, the hidden aspects that aren't so readily visible. I don't think that I started even making connections until a few years into working with the material of found SF and and the kind of research that we do for our tours Because things then would start to remind me of other things I had heard about, or I start to make an analysis of how the hills of the Sierras and the mountains were connected to an urban center through the various machinations of um, the gold rush and the industry that popped up around it. And those kind of aha moments, maybe they're not emotionally connected in the way that you're saying, Liam, but the way that I start making connections for myself just because I'm returning to the material again and again and I'm reading more and I'm diving more into different research options, that becomes then the opportunity for me to offer some perspectives and points of view and narratives that people wouldn't necessarily even be taking the time to make the connections for. So it, it's not so much the professional angle that offers me the ability to do that, but it's it's just the returning to the material again and again and scraping through like a garden, you know, turning the soil, planting more seeds, seeing what sprouts out of the combination of elements that come together. And that's what gives me the exciting moments to be able to share that with people and have people make those connections as you offer these various influences and moments and people and historical timeframes. So so I think that there's there's a way that the opportunity and the obligation then lies with the historian or the person who has access to that material uh, or just takes the opportunity to have access to that material again and again.
2: Yeah, if I could riff off of both of those, um, I totally agree, Lisa Ruth. When we get excited about it, we can make other people excited about it. And for me personally, the human connection, the human storylines that we trip across in our research. And Chris, I think you make a really good point of everything that's happened in San Francisco has been powered by people in your book, even things that are ecologically focused or things that seem mechanical like transportation things like that you bring down to a human level which I think makes it really powerful and the other thing that your book does really well which is what we try to do too and I think that's also the power of podcasting is that you can take it wherever you need to go and you can take uh, your book wherever you need to go and so you have this ability to take all these disparate threads these disparate narratives and you get to knit them in place So um, it doesn't become an esoteric concept. You're reading quotes from people and you're standing in front of the building that it's about. And all of a sudden, all of it makes sense. I think that's what I get excited about. I think that's what you guys get excited about too. And and that's the real power of what we do.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's well said. And I I mean, I, I really appreciate all the things you guys have just said. And one of the things that reminded me is that the work that we are doing as grassroots historians is really to encourage people to think historically which is often missing from the discussion. Like there's a sense that historians are professionals who produce a product and then they want consumers to consume it. And I think none of us think that way at all. We're all busily engaged with trying to explain how the hell the world got like this, but not just for our own satisfaction, but to actually encourage other people to find those moments of, of, of excitement and enlightenment that comes from making those kinds of connections. And I think that's where this book comes in is because for a lot of people who might stumble on any of our work online, they may or may not have the wherewithal or the luck or the preconceived ideas to make the kind of connections that we've been able to draw out. So the book is, is a much more composed effort to draw those threads through and make the kinds of connections between, say, a good example for me, is you know The Lost Landscapes in the subtitle is, is a recurrent theme throughout the book, and it comes up in multiple ways. But the most obvious one is the ecological theme of the, the once upon a time shoreline of San Francisco and the hills and the sand dunes that have been leveled and filled into that shoreline and changed the literal shape of the city and extended it out into the water quite a ways. And much of the original waterways of San Francisco are now submerged. But curiously enough, they're still there. But as one starts to explore that reality, and when we're out on a bicycle or on a walking tour, we do that in depth, you find out that it was actually human beings who got together in various capacities, usually as wage slaves and owners, to do work and alter that landscape. And it was under certain kinds of dictates, whether it was to make land more valuable. Most of the time it was driving up the value of land in one sort or another, making land out of water or flattening land that had inconvenient hills on it or inconvenient piles of rock. And so that kind of uh, sort of in-depth look at the landscape as a way of trying to really foreground human agency and all these questions that we we face about how, you know how the world got to be the way it is. Because if you can foreground human agency, you actually also contribute to the prospect of a shift in subjectivity about going forward from this moment. Not only did the world change radically behind us to get to where we are today through human interventions of various types under various degrees of coercion and freedom. But also, we have those same dramas ahead of us. We have the opportunity to change the kind of world we're going to live in going forward, especially now with the the dramatic crisis that we all face in the collapsing world economy. Never before have we had the opportunity to actually rethink how we live together. So that gets me to this question a little bit about uh, some of the themes that are in the book. And I'm wondering, maybe you guys can just chime in where you things you read in the book were, were sort of helpful or enlightening or inspiring for you. But the particular dual themes that I write in the opening chapter to sort of frame all the rest of the content that comes later were labor and ecology, which I've now talked about quite a bit, and then genocide and slavery, which is sort of a literally whitewashed part of California and San Francisco history. It's just left out. We don't really talk about it very much, but the horrendous genocide of California Native peoples that lived here for thousands of years, and then uh, their uh, imposed slavery on them, both by the original Spanish colonists, as well as the Americans who arrived in large numbers after 1847 and engaged in rampant and blatant and uh, public genocide from then on until the 1870s. Uh, we have to talk about that in terms of you know foundational stories of how the state got to be the way it was. And one piece of slavery that nobody ever talks about is how sailors were held on ships in a state of virtual slavery, uh, even though that's just never acknowledged. But there was this famous Supreme Court decision in 1897 that acknowledged uh, and and legitimized the idea that sailors were not protected by the 13th Amendment's ban on involuntary servitude because they were deemed as uh, insufficiently adult. (laughs) They They were treated as minors by the court and thought that they had to be controlled by their captains and so on. So that's a, a kind of a recurrent piece of the story that I kind of come back to several times in the book. Uh, war and anti-war, You know, San Francisco has always been at the epicenter of the war economy from the very earliest days. And you know, just at the end of the Mexican American war, it becomes California, it becomes San Francisco as we know it. And then that war was totally a fraud and was all about seizing vast quantities of Mexican territory, which are now under duress to say the least. And then, uh, you know, the people who were opposed to that. And even the, during that era, there were not so much people in San Francisco, but obviously people in the East who were opposed to the war for all sorts of reasons. You know, Lincoln made, made a name for himself by contesting the spot on which the war began down in, near Matamoros in Mexico and whether that was or was not American territory, as was claimed by the president at the time. And then, of course, you can follow it right through all the way up to the present, you know, anti-war movements in in the last two decades against the Persian Gulf War and the Iraq War, et cetera, as well as, you know, famously Mark Twain and the Anti-Imperialist League of, of the United States fighting against the Philippine War in 1898 and the annexation of the Philippines as a colony, et cetera. So, and then, you know, San Francisco's major port, major war war material went through this port. Warships were built here uh, at the Union Ironworks, et cetera. So that's sort of foundational as well. And then lastly, modernism and romanticism. You know, this is a city that everybody, especially the people who just got here, love to romanticize how great it used to be. And everybody's always looking backwards just recently going, oh, if only it was just like that again. You know, it was so great just last week or last month or 10 years ago or 25 years ago, as the case may be. I wish I was here during the beat period. I wish I was here in the 1920s. Yeah, we all can dream like that. But There's these interesting moments throughout San Francisco's history where movements have actually shaped the city that we're in today. So, you know, you have the Save the Cable Cars movement, for instance, in the 1940s, which is the only reason there are still cable cars in San Francisco. You have uh, the first moment of environmental resistance, which was to prevent the demolition of Telegraph Hill back in the 1890s and early first decade of the 20th century. Uh, led by middle-class women from Russian Hill. So there's these sort of interesting moments that are sort of romantic in their their relationships to nature and their relationships to a vision of what San Francisco should be. The anti-high-rise revolt in the 1970s comes to mind as another example of that. And then it's also true that we're the ultimately modernist place. Everything that's happened at the cutting edge of modern life has happened here, usually in the very beginning of the process, whether it's photography or microchips or you know, hydraulic mining or any of these kinds of things that have happened in California and uh, have roots in San Francisco and this weird sort of technological fetishistic society that we are the epicenter of here in San Francisco. So those themes kind of run through everything in the book, in my opinion. And I'm kind of curious to, you know, having laid all that out, anybody want to take a piece of any of that stuff and chew on it for a minute? Who wants to?
4: Yeah, I would love to just say one quick thing, which... um hadn't occurred to me before, even though we've been talking about this book for a while, you and I, Chris, as you've been developing it, the idea of romanticism, I think guidebooks tend towards that sort of tone, um, particularly about San Francisco, like, oh, all these wonderful times I wish I had been there for, and now I can visit the place and kind of feel as if I was part of something, even if, you know, 20, 30, 100 years later, and your your guidebook doesn't do that it doesn't say like oh dream about being in san francisco in this way it's it's uh, it, it does really come down to the ground level and say this is how it actually works folks this is how a city comes together through the thick and thin and these are all of the ways that knitted together create the kind of place that you see now and it's it's not all these romantic moments um there's that desire to be nostalgic for how sourdough bread has transformed the you know wheat and dough and and bakery landscape of san francisco but there's so much more that goes into it and i think that's just testament to the kinds of stories that you've pulled out of the tours we've done and and the digital archive and and your own study and exploration over the years
2: I agree with Lisa Ruth. Um, You do a really good job of kind of letting us know how the sausage is made while also offering just a broad survey of it. You know, I I really appreciated how you traversed a really broad swath of time and space and uh, diverse narratives and sort of boiled it all down with a sense of place. Um, And also to follow up on what Lisa Ruth was talking about with the Catch-22 of nostalgia and what we do with local history. the big shame of my life is that I was born and raised in Southern California in Los Angeles, and now I'm trying to work as a San Francisco historian. And um, not trying, I'm doing it. Um, but people love San Francisco, whether or not they're from here or not from here. And because there's so much divisive change happening, they get very territorial about it. And They don't want to be corrected if they have remembered something incorrectly. And so many old history books just focus on kind of the best ofs of San Francisco history. Um, Like when you went into all that information about sailors and things like that, I mean, really all I'd ever heard about it was some guys were Shanghai'd and that was crazy, but also isn't San Francisco hilarious and how crazy it was. So, you do a really good job of acknowledging these sort of beloved tropes in local history um, without being heavy handed about it. You know, you just give an honest look at these things that we've all come to sort of understand as part of the narrative here and take it to the next level. So, I appreciated that.
3: Hmm. Yeah. Thanks. Another thing I appreciate about the book is that I think it really does highlight the power of, you know, relatively small groups of people to make change that's so important that has a, impact that really, uh, you know, goes on for decades. For example, the freeway revolt. It's like, can you imagine if the activists who started that campaign weren't there at the time to prevent this horrific plan to carve up the panhandle and carve up the city with all these freeways? Uh, And you look at cities now that are really dominated by freeways and the landscape beneath them and and to the side of them, uh, or even parts of San Francisco, that have been dominated by freeways or, you know, the the famous example that everyone talks about is how the ferry building used to be cut off from Market Street through the freeway that cut there. And so that's one of the reasons why I love history so much is because it's inspiring to see the victories that happened when people came together and realized that they could challenge the, you know, power structure and stand against the prevailing wisdom of what was the right thing to do. And looking around and seeing the benefits of that, it makes me realize, you know, there's still that possibility out there. We can still have impacts now in the city around us that will be beneficial for the generations to come.
0: That was Chris Carlson, Nicole Meldal, Liam O'Donoghue, and Lisa Ruth Elliott. If you want to keep listening, the full version of this episode is available right now for Patreon members via patreon.com forward slash plutopress. And Hidden San Francisco is available to buy from plutobooks.com. You can use the coupon PODCAST at the checkout to get 50% off. This is Radicals in Conversation. We'll be back this time next month exploring a people's history of tennis with author David Berry. And in two weeks' time, there'll be another episode of The New Intellectuals, where Jordan T. Kemp will be in conversation with actor Sudanva Deshpande. Thanks for listening, stay safe, and see you next time.